Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. So with that, if you'd open your Bibles now to the book of Genesis chapter 14. <clears throat> Genesis 14. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay, uh, but it would help you to have one before you, and you can grab a paperback Bible from underneath one of the chairs in front of you and turn it to page 6. Genesis 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. <clears throat> one of our practices here at, at New Life, and it has been and, and is uh, kind of a deep conviction for us in kind of the Reformed tradition, is that we really like to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, just going through a book chapter by chapter. We think that's very important, and it's rooted in the conviction that all of the Bible is God's Word. That's whether it's familiar to you or not, it's whether it's easy to grasp or hard to grasp, or whether you want to hear it or don't want to hear it. Uh, if it's in the Bible, it is God's Word, and it is worthy of our attention. And so we base this in a passage in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, that says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for, correction and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman or child of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I'm reminding you of this this morning because as we read this passage, Genesis 14, you might kind of ask yourself, why are we spending time reading this ancient word? Uh, what is going on with all of these names I've never heard before and these places that I've never heard of? This is confusing. This is tedious. What does this have to do with me? That might be what you think when I read this passage. But I'm just reminding you today, and I know a lot of you know this, but if you're new to the church, may, maybe you're not aware of this particular approach to preaching. But I want to remind you that even passages like Genesis 14, because Genesis 14 is God's Word, that means when you hear that passage read and proclaimed to you, you are hearing God speak to you. Whether you're comfortable with the passage, again, whether it makes sense to you or not, whether you like it or not, it is God speaking to you. It is God using that passage to train you for righteousness. This is God's way of equipping you for every good work that He would have for you to do in the coming week, later this afternoon, Monday through Friday at your job or at home. God does this through the preaching of the Word. This is a good Sunday just to remind you of that, again, because uh, this passage is uh, going to be a little bit <laughs> difficult to read, as has been some of the previous passages here in our series in Genesis, but there is something here for us. God is going to speak. The job of a preacher is uh, not for me to stand up here and tell you what we should or shouldn't have done in Afghanistan, and it's not my job to tell you whether or not you should get the vaccine. Uh, my job is to tell you what the Bible says, and I'm going to do the best that I can here with this passage in Genesis 14. So, we are going through a series. We've been going through the book of Genesis, chapter by chapter, and we're just focusing here on this uh, ancient patriarch named Abraham. And so, this particular portion of the series is called The Life of 
Abraham. So you might recall what has happened here, just to get some context. God has come to Abraham. He's called him out of his homeland. He's made a promise. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make from you a great nation. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, what we find is that God's purpose is to produce from that nation a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the hope of the world, the one who will bless all families of the earth as God promised to Abraham. And so last week we were looking at Abram's comeback because earlier he faltered, um, didn't, uh, did, didn't uh, perform so well at the end of chapter 12, but in chapter 13 he comes back and he shows himself to be a peacemaker, a gracious, humble person. Today we're going to see a different side of Abraham. We're going to see Abram the warrior, Abram the warrior, Genesis 14. So, if you're able to stand, please do that. <clears throat> and let me read verses 1 through 16 and hear God speak to us. <clears throat> In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedar Laamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedar Laamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the, em, the Emim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as, as, far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hasis on Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedar Laamar, king of Elam, titled king of Go Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsman had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women 
and the people. Lord God, we ask by your Spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in these ancient words today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, I think the best way to, to handle this is to uh, let me have some time to try to explain to you what we just read, uh, what just happened, and after I do that, then we'll consider some lessons that we can learn from this. So, uh, what in the world did I just read to you? So, here, here's what happened. To begin with here, we see that there are two groups of kings. Uh, one group of kings here is mentioned in verse one, and we are going to call these kings the foreign kings. And uh, so these are uh, Amraphel, Ariok, Kedorlaomer, Tidal, uh, and these kings uh, that are listed, these four kings. So we're calling these the foreign kings, and the reason why is because these are not kings in the land of Canaan. So this is where Abram is living now. Remember, he went down to Egypt, now he's gone back into Canaan. But these first four kings in verse 1, they are from outside of Canaan. Now let me show you here just a map of this area. Um, this is a, a map of the world today. And uh, maybe some of you might not know your geography so well, but I, I want you to see that what we're talking about here in the Bible are real places on this earth. Okay, so this is not a fable uh, this is not a myth. We're talking about the nation of Israel, the promised land, which is right here in this little blue area. So this is, a, this is a modern map, not a map of biblical times, but a modern map. But Israel still exists, of course. And so this is the promised land. So in verse 1, when it talks about these other kings, these foreign kings, uh, we believe that they were probably located here in Iraq somewhere, maybe up here in Iran, uh, maybe even as far up here in Turkey, which would have been called Mesopotamia at the time. So they're not from Canaan, they're, they're foreign kings, okay? In verse 2, we see then the local kings. So these are the kings who live in the land of Canaan. Verse 2, this is Bera uh, of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah. So you recognize those names, probably, Sodom and Gomorrah. They are in the Can uh, land of Canaan, the promised land. Um, Shinab and um, Shemaper. So these are the local kings. And we see in verse 3 that there is a battle that takes place. And it's between the foreign kings and the local kings. And it takes place in this place called Sedim. Verse 3 says that all these join forces in the valley of Sedim. And it says that this is the Salt Sea. This is also called the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is also known as the Salt Sea because there's a lot of salt in the Dead Sea. Uh, there's about 10 times more salt in the Dead Sea than there is in uh, the oceans of the world. So very buoyant, very salty waters, sometimes called the Salt Sea. Um, but this is right near Sedim. Uh, and so here is a, a kind of a, a zooming in map of the nation of Israel. And you'll see that the Dead Sea is right here. That's the Salt Sea. Uh, Sedim is kind of down here, close to uh, this Salt Sea. And so it's interesting here to notice, isn't it, that we have the first mention in the Bible of a military conflict. Here, here's the first mention of war taking place. Uh, you know, we saw Adam and Eve rebel against God in the garden. We saw personal sin kind of follow from that. Cain and Abel, we saw the problem there. We saw Tower of Babel, people are rising up in rebellion against God. Well, sin is spreading throughout the earth now. And now it's gotten to the point where there are 
armies fighting each other, not just people fighting each other, but, but armies. And, um, of course, this is still a problem that we have today, right? So here's the situation. It picks up in verse 4, and what it says is that these local kings um, had served Kedar Laamar. So he's kind of the, the leader, apparently, of these foreign kings. And uh, the local kings had been subjugated to him and to those kings for a time, and after a while they get sick of it. And so they decided to do something about it. Verse 4 tells us that they rebelled. So the local kings rebelled against the foreign kings. Well, in response to that then, Kedar, Laamar, and the rest of these foreign kings, they go out on this military campaign. And so through verses 5 and 6, what we're seeing is just this description of this kind of uh, pathway through which these foreign kings are just routing everybody in their way. So um, they defeat the Rephaim, the Zuzim, uh, the Emim, the Horites. And um, so here's on another map uh, where this is happening. So again, here's here's, uh, Dead Sea, Salt Sea. Here's the Promised Land, Israel. Uh, So again, we're zooming in from that world map. Uh, And here are these foreign kings. Remember, I said they were way up here. Well, they're coming down through this path. And they're just wiping out everybody in their pathway. And they go all the way down to a place called El Paran. Uh, I think it says that in verse 6, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. So now they're, they're very, you know, at the very south end of the promised land. Uh, but the passage goes on and tells us that they turned back, verse 7, and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh. So they start going back up this way, and then they start heading this way. Now here's Sodom and Gomorrah, so here's where the local kings are. Abram is kind of living over here in this area. And so all of this is being told to us because this is the background to set up this battle in this uh, valley of Sidim. So then we look at verse 10, and we get some description of this valley of Sidim. It tells us that this place was full of of bitumen pits. Now, a bitumen pit is just, a, it's just like a, a, a tar pit. Um, so, people would use tar at that time for kind of cement and mortar, and they would dig these pits so they could mine up this bitumen or this tar. And so, all throughout this region, there's these kind of big holes in the ground full of tar. And what we find here is that as the local kings are fleeing, verse 10, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and it says some fell into these pits, and the rest fled to the country. Maybe the kings fell into the pits, maybe it's just other soldiers in the armies, Uh, we're not really sure. Uh, But by the way, apparently there's still tar that floats on the surface of the Dead Sea today. Um, And there's some debate about exactly what this phrase means when it says they fell into the pits. Some say that really what it means is they threw themselves into the pits. And then some say, well, maybe they were lowering themselves into the pits in order to hide from these armies pursuing them, or they might have just thrown themselves in there to commit suicide because they're so afraid of being pursued by Kedar Laamar and the foreign kings. 
In any case, through verse 10, we see that things are not going well for the local kings. These foreign kings come by, they're routing everybody, and then they start to rout the local kings, and they get whipped. And we see this in verse 11, the enemy, that's the foreign kings, they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So notice something here about, about Lot. Um, <clears throat> remember last week we saw that there was this uh, exchange between Abram and Lot, and Abram said to Lot, you can take whatever part of the land you want, and, and Lot took what he wanted, and then we saw that he started to head down toward Sodom, right? And we learned that Sodom was a place where very wicked people lived, and yet here's Lot foolishly moving down toward Sodom. So in verse or chapter 13, it doesn't say he went into Sodom, but he says he got close to Sodom. But then you look here in verse 12, and it says that he was dwelling in Sodom. <laughs> So there's just this, this warning here, you know, we, we're just kind of drawn toward sin and wickedness and sometimes we kind of move toward it and we think, well, I, I'm just going to take a look, I, I just want to see what's going on. I'm not going to go all the way, I, you know, I'm going to keep my distance, but I'm going to check this out. And then next thing you know, there's Lot dwelling in this place of wickedness. So... Lot is kidnapped by these foreign kings. And then we pick up the story here in verse 13. That one escapes, and he gets away. One of the local king's soldiers, he escapes, and he comes and he tells Abram the Hebrew. First time the word Hebrew is used in the Bible, right here. He comes and tells Abram. And Abram is living by the oaks of Mamre, and he hears about this, and he launches into action. And he has some allies of his own, it says, um, in verse 13. And he also has a number of men born in his house. This probably in includes just servants in his house, not only his uh, uh, you know, blood relatives, but he's got 318 of them. So he gathers up his allies he, allies, he gathers up these people in his house, and he goes on pursuit after these kings who had kidnapped his nephew Lot. And so one thing here that this you know, might make us kind of reevaluate because we, we kind of have this mental image of, of Abram in our mind, maybe a little bit like this. You know, he's, he's definitely an older guy. We know that. He's 75 years old. But we think of him as this, you know, real kind of gentle, grandfatherly guy. Um, I, I, I think here this might depict a little closer what Abram was like, at least in this passage. He's got an army. Uh, he is not going to allow these foreign kings to get away with this. He goes on pursuit. And um, if we go back to our map, we'll see that the pursuit begins about right here. So the Valley of Sedim, there's been that battle. The foreign kings routed the local kings. Lot is kidnapped. And so Abram then pursues his nephew all the way up to Dan, it says. Um, in one of those verses, and uh, then he goes all the way up to Damascus. So Damascus is now uh, getting up into the area of, of Syria outside the Promised Land. And uh, we read the result of, of all of this here as we look at verse 15. He divides his forces. He's strategic. He, 
He, he goes on the attack at night when they're asleep and not ready, and um, he defeats the foreign kings. Uh, there it is, north of Damascus, and then he brings back all the possessions that they had taken, and he brings back his kinsman, Lot. He rescues his nephew, all of his possessions, women, all the people in Lot's household, their wives, their girls, and he rescues them all. And so we see this picture of Abram, the warrior. <laughs> Abram's a tough guy. Uh, he's a gentle, godly, humble guy, but he's a tough guy too. And he goes on this successful military campaign. Now, one thing that we ought to see here, I mean, this is you know, obviously a, a, a great achievement by Abram. Uh, you can just imagine how he might have been a little nervous about pursuing these foreign kings after they'd just gone on this successful military campaign routing everybody in their path. And yet Abram steps up and he goes after him. And what's happening here is we're seeing the fulfillment of what God promised earlier in chapter 12 when he said to Abram, I'm going to make you in a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. This is God fulfilling his promise. I'm going to make you great, Abram. You're going to do great things. I'm going to bless you in your efforts. God's promises are coming true. And we see that in the way he's gaining these victories over these foreign armies. Okay, so that's just, that's a overview of this passage. So, you still might have this question, what does this mean for me? <laughs> How, you know, does this have any relevance to me living in Yorktown, Muncie, Indiana in the year 2021? Well, I, I think it does. Uh, before I get to the lessons, let, let me just explain something else to you by, by way of just kind of background. I said a couple Sundays ago that the Bible is not a book primarily about what you and I do for God, but rather it's a book primarily about what God has done, is doing, and will do for us. Do you remember that? that, that that's a very important thing to know as you read the Bible. It's not primarily a book telling us what to do so that we can be good people and be saved. It's about what God promised to do, what He has done, what He is going to do. It's about God's power, God's grace, God's faithfulness. That's the primary purpose of the Bible. And in particular, primarily as it is fulfilled in the sending of God's Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to live, die, and be resurrected for us. That's what the Bible is about. The Bible is about Jesus, and I can say that based on Scripture because in Luke 24... Here's what Luke says about Jesus. This is on the road to Emmaus. This is after the resurrection. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Moses wrote Genesis. So that's a reference to Genesis. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the prophets, the book of Genesis are about Jesus. That's what Jesus says. So, you know, you can put your bet on that one. That, that's a reliable way to look at the Old Testament is think of it in terms of how it's going to point you to Jesus because that's what Jesus says. So that's just supporting this idea. The Bible is about what God has done, is doing, and will do for us primarily in the person of Jesus Christ. But I don't want you to misunderstand because if you hear that, you might say, okay, then there's really no direction or instruction or example for me in the Old Testament about how I live. You might conclude that, and that would be a wrong conclusion. The Old Testament, the Bible, does offer to you examples for how you should live. 
The life of Abram is given to give you instruction and to give you direction for how you should live, to give you an example for how you should live and follow uh, in, in this life. And so let's look to another New Testament passage very close to the New Testament reading earlier in the service. But here's Paul, and he's talking about uh, Israel's wandering in the wilderness. So it's a little bit after the events of Genesis, but it's still, it's Old Testament stuff, and Paul's talking about all these things that happened in the Old Testament, and he says these things happened to them, to Israel, as an example. For whom? They were written down in the Bible for our instruction. Paul's talking to the church of Jesus Christ, on whom the end of the ages has come. So Jesus says, the Old Testament is about me primarily. And then Paul says, well, you know what? The things written in the Old Testament are also written as an example for you and for me living today as part of the church of Jesus Christ in central Indiana in the year 2021. These things are for our example, for our instruction. So it's proper to look to the Scriptures and say, okay, there is example here for me to follow. It's improper, though, to say, and I sure hope I can do it well enough so I can save myself. Now, now you're going off. You're, you're going too far. There's an example for how to live, but the power for living this way is in the grace given to us in the gospel. So I say all that by way of introducing a few lessons, examples for us to follow, okay? So three things here. First of all, there's a lesson in faith. There's a lesson in faith in this passage. Abram is a man of faith. That's what he is known as primarily. And so we see Abram's life so we can see some examples of how to live by faith, and sometimes we see examples of how not to live in Abram's life. When we get to chapter 16, we'll see another example of that. But Hebrews 11 is very clear. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, so Genesis 14 is about Abram's life in the land. And so Hebrews is saying, you know, Abram is a man of faith, and he is being presented as an example of how you and I should live by faith. Now, in this instance, in chapter 14, we see that Abram lived by faith primarily by taking initiative. He heard that Lot was captured and he didn't just sit back and say, well, I hope somebody will save him. He didn't sit back and say, well, I have faith in God. Maybe God will, will save him. God can do it. I'll just stay here at the Oaks of Mamre and wait and see what God does. And he could have said, I'm exercising my faith. I'm trusting God. But that's not what he did. He, he acted. He did something. He stepped out. He took initiative. Faith sometimes is passive. That's true. There are times when we don't really know what to do, and there might not be anything we can do. You're applying for a job, for instance. You do the best you can on your resume. You send it out. You get your cover letter. Well, what can you do now except wait? And so you wait in faith, and you pray, and you wait to see if this employer is going to call you back, but there's really not a whole lot you can do. Faith is sometimes passive. But faith is sometimes active as well. And that's what we're seeing in, in Abram. He, he steps out. He doesn't sit back passively. 
He, he wants to do something about it. He takes a risk. He's risking his life here. And this is given to us as an example that there are times, friends, when you've got to step out. There are times when you've got to take a risk. There are times when you have to step out of your comfort zone. That's the way you walk in faith. T.S. Eliot says this, Only those who risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. Are you willing to step out to make that phone call that you don't really want to make? To invite that person to church? You're not sure how they're going to respond? To start that new ministry that God has put on your heart? To share your gospel with, share the gospel with your neighbor? your family member, your friend. The Christian life, friends, is not about maximizing your comfort and protecting yourself. That's not the Christian life. It's one of faith, and sometimes faith needs to be active. Now, it's not always easy to tell the difference between when you should be passive and when you should be active. That takes wisdom. That takes um, the consultation of your brothers and sisters in Christ, considerable time in the Word of God, to discern that. But that's the first lesson. There's a lesson in faith, but there's also here a lesson in mercy. A lesson in mercy. Remember Lot from last week? Remember he was presented the option of snatching up every bit of the land, and he certainly did that, and he didn't defer to Abram. He took what he could get, and he moved foolishly toward this wicked city of Sodom. So, you know, Lot hasn't actually behaved so well in this situation, and you can imagine maybe what Abram thought when he got the message that Lot had been kidnapped. Maybe he thought, yeah, you know, serves him right. Let him figure out how to get out of this mess. He made his bed, let him lie in it. I mean, this is the way we tend to think, right? We're generally inclined to show mercy to people who we think deserve it. But we're not so inclined to show mercy to those who don't deserve it, and particularly to those who have offended us in some way. We feel like we have a right to withhold mercy in those situations. But here is Abram, and he has every reason to just say, Lot, your problem, you fix it. But instead, his heart is welled up with mercy for his kinsmen. This is family. This is his nephew. I can't turn the other way when my nephew has been captured. Now, I think today we can expand this further, not just to your brothers, sisters, and nephews, and aunts, and uncles, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. You are my kinsmen and kinswomen. And there's an example here for how we are to show mercy to one another, whether they deserve it or not. <laughs> There's a story of Napoleon, the great French military leader, emperor. A mother came to Napoleon to plead on behalf of her son, who was under the death penalty. And the mother comes and says, Napoleon, emperor, I plead for mercy. And Napoleon says, well, your son doesn't deserve mercy. And she says, well, it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. That, that, that's the whole purpose of mercy. It's offered to those who don't deserve it. If you're not willing to show mercy to those who don't deserve it, you don't understand mercy. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. Maybe there's somebody in your life, in your household, in your neighborhood, in your workplace who needs your mercy. And not your condemnation, but your mercy. So there's a lesson in mercy here from Abram. And then lastly we see, of course, there's a lesson in the gospel. There's a lesson in the gospel for us here. Maybe you've been able to see it. But one thing we need to to realize as we read this passage in Genesis 14, and and it takes humility to acknowledge it. It takes a a work of the Spirit to open your eyes to this. But here's what you need to to realize. There is a whole, there's a lot of lot in you and in me. We look at Lot, we look the other way, we scoff at him, we're embarrassed, we laugh, what a fool, and yet friends, There's a lot of lot in you and in me. We are the ones, friends, as God's sinful creatures, we are the ones who tend to create our own problems. We are the ones who tend to grab for what we can without regard for others. At the very least, we are the ones who move towards sin and not away from it. Isn't that true? Sin is enticing. It excites us. And we don't flee from it very often. Sometimes we do, like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. We tend to move toward it, just like Lot. And the first step to becoming a Christian and to really getting the gospel is to admit that and acknowledge it. I am more like Lot than I am like Abram. My heart likes sin. I am a sinner. I need to be rescued Have you come to that place in your life where you've acknowledged that? I'm not good enough on my own. I can't save myself. I need someone else to rescue me. That's the first place you got to get before you become a Christian. And as we look here and see Abram and the way he behaved, what we also learn here about the gospel is that what Abram was to Lot, that's what Jesus is for you and for me. Abram left the oaks of Mamre, to pursue his nephew. Jesus left the throne room of heaven and came to earth in the form of a man to go after you, to pursue you, to chase you down, to capture you, to rescue you. Abram risked his life in going after this formidable military opponent. Jesus gave his life. He knew his life was going to be given when he came into this world to pursue you. And he voluntarily, willingly laid it down on the cross. And when he was resurrected from the grave, friends, as Abram rescued his nephew from these four kings, well, Jesus rescues you who trust in him from the power of the devil. He rescues you from your sin. He rescues you from the pit of hell. He rescues you from the wrath of God. The question is, have you received this Savior and believed upon his name? That's what we should see as we read this passage. This is a passage about the gospel. This is pointing us to what Jesus has done for us. Friends, will you, have you, acknowledge yourself to be a sinner before God? Have you acknowledged yourself to be in need of rescue? Have you put your faith in Jesus as the only one who can save you, the only one who can rescue? If you haven't done that, Here's what we're going to do as we close this message. I'm just going to pray out loud, 
And you can pray along with me in your heart. You don't have to pray out loud. But um, this really is the way a person becomes a Christian. If you haven't become a Christian already, you can pray a prayer very similar to the one I'm about to pray. And if you don't pray along with me right now, that's okay. Maybe you could pray it or something like it later today or this week. But if the Lord is working in your heart and drawing you right now, I would tell you, do it now and pray along with me. Okay? So I'm going to pray out loud. You can pray along with me. Uh, musicians, if you want to come forward, and we'll get ready to close in song. So let's pray. <clears throat> uh, Lord God, I confess that I have sinned against you. And I ask for your mercy. I ask you, Lord, to save me. Uh, Jesus, I believe that you have come into this world. You have died on the cross for me. And you are resurrected from the dead for me. And I believe it. And I declare that you alone, Jesus, can rescue. You alone can save and you alone can lift me from the grave. Help me now to live in obedience to you. And we thank you for your grace in saving sinners like me. In Jesus' name, amen.